All right, well, welcome in again this morning. We are going to be taking a little bit of a departure from 1 Corinthians. So those of you looking forward to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, when we begin to talk about uh, sins that we don't want to uh, lay out there before the Lord. Good news! Off. Maybe two weeks off. Uh, but today, we're going to uh, talk about Palm Sunday. We're celebrating today as Palm Sunday, the week of the Passion Week, as it's called sometimes, this day signifying the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem as we head towards Easter this coming Sunday. And as we bring that up, what I wanted to talk about is, is what's the importance of the day? What, why do we celebrate today as Palm Sunday? What, what signifies the importance? And what, what really do we need to focus in on as believers in Jesus? And so as I was thinking about this week, I asked a few different people in the office if they knew uh, about Palm Sunday and what was the significance. And I was surprised that there were some that knew that it, this was the day that signified Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Some thought it was Jesus coming into uh, Jericho and some that it was his birth and all these other things. You know, you get all these random reasons why we celebrate uh, Palm Sunday. But as we consider this, it is to signify Jesus coming triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem. But that right there, just putting it out there, it leads us to ask another question. Uh, what was so significant about this particular entry that Jesus had in Jerusalem? Is this the first time that he came into town? And what you know as we journey through Scripture is the answer is uh, Jesus had in fact been to Jerusalem several different times, including uh, shortly after his birth. You remember that Mary and Joseph brought baby Jesus into the temple where you have uh, Anna and Simeon. They celebrate the arrival of the Messiah there in the temple. And so you have to wonder what is so significant about it. In fact, one of my favorite visitations of Jesus to Jerusalem took place in Luke chapter 2. And in Luke chapter 2, this is a story of Jesus going to Jerusalem on the Passover, this very same week that we're celebrating, Passover week. Jesus went when he was just a 12-year-old boy. And what we're told about this journey is Mary and Joseph, they bring 12-year-old Jesus uh, to Jerusalem with them to celebrate the feast of Passover. And then they proceed to leave as a family altogether, only to get a day's journey down the road and realize they left Jesus back in Jerusalem. And so they have to turn around a day away and hoof it all the way back to Jerusalem another day. And then they spend a day looking for him. So three days, Jesus is lost, separated from his parents, only for him to say when they finally find him, they're in the temple teaching the rabbis. He says in verse 49, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And so here, this is Jesus' answer at 12. Now, the reason I love that story is, uh, oftentimes, as parents, we feel less than. Maybe we have not accomplished all that we were called to, but you know what I've never done? Uh, lost the Son of God for three days. Never did that. And so as I look at this, I'm like, man, Mary and Joseph have not set the bar very high. They lost Jesus. It's like, you got one job. Keep track of the Son of God, okay? And they couldn't do it. So I take a lot of encouragement for probably not the best reason in that story. But my point is, this is not the first time Jesus went to Jerusalem. So what makes this time so different? And so as we are going to eventually make our way to Luke chapter 19 and read through the triumphal entry, we're going to first start in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to take a little journey through your Bibles. So there are Bibles in the seat pockets in front of you. You can uh, look it up on your phone if you'd like as well. 
We're going to start back in Genesis chapter 3. As we arrive there, you might recall that for two whole chapters in Genesis, things went pretty well for Adam and Eve. But then in chapter 3, uh, the wheels fell off. In fact, they decided to uh, do things their own way, uh, to obey a different master, and Eve took of the one tree, the one place God said, don't eat from this, otherwise uh, you will know the difference between good and evil. But really what they were experiencing was they were opening their mind, their, themselves up to evil. That's what they were, in fact, doing. They chose another master, the fall of mankind. And so from that point, humanity has got this disconnect from God. As Adam and Eve made that decision, any descendants after them have this same spiritual death. We've been talking about that in 1 Corinthians, that we, we have to be reborn in the spirit to be reconnected with God because of this nature. But in verse 15 of chapter 3 of Genesis, this is God speaking to Eve and to Satan. And what he says is, I will put enmity or war between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Notice seed is capitalized. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so from the very beginning of our scripture, something is taking place. God has decided to make a way where there was no way. The disconnect that had happened because of our own selfishness, our own pride, our own decision to do things our way, what God is saying is, I'm going to give a seed to the woman, a capital S seed. He's speaking here early on of the Messiah, one who would crush the head of the serpent, put an end to Satan and his reign, and also cause and bring about connection where there was previously a separation to reconnect us to God, this severed relationship that had taken place. Now, all that to say, from Genesis chapter 3, if you go through to chapter 12, you see the promise then passed on to Abraham and his descendants. And from Abraham on to Isaac, the chosen son of Abraham and his descendants. And then on to Jacob after that. And finally, when we arrive to chapter 49 of Genesis, we have Jacob now. He is an old man. He's getting ready to pass off the scene. He calls in his 12 sons, and he's going to pronounce a blessing over them. He's going to prophesy over his 12 sons. And one in particular that I want to hone in on in verse 8 is his son Judah. He says in verse 8 of Genesis 49, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. His name literally in Hebrew meant praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows and he lies down as a lion and as a lion who shall rouse him. In verse uh, 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, for to him shall be the obedience of the people. And so Jacob prophesies over Judah, but what he's actually seeing is out into the future that there is one who is going to hold the scepter from the line of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is who he's prophesying about, speaking of the Messiah. And so the promise has gone now from Abraham, then to Isaac and Jacob, who has given to Judah this prophecy that the Messiah is going to come from your line, from your lineage. But inside the promise, there's an issue. Uh, you see, they're not in the promised land that was given to Abraham. They're stuck in Egypt. A famine had taken them there. And they didn't just stay in Egypt for a few days or a few weeks or a few years. Uh, they would find themselves 
in Egypt for 400 years. Four centuries there in Egypt. And you might remember as we go through Scripture that Egypt is always a picture of the world in the Old Testament. So here they are trapped in Egypt, and they're now slaves. They're slaves to the world. And you have to wonder, where is God in the middle of this? Where is deliverance for these people as they cry out to the Lord? And and what you'll find is uh, he is right around the corner. Exodus chapter 12 is where we're going to go. So as the people cry out to be delivered, to be taken out of Egypt, and they remind God of his promises, we arrive at Exodus chapter 12. And what we see is the first Passover, this same Passover week that we're celebrating. Here is where it is instituted. Now, what you know as you make your way to Exodus 12 is that nine times up to this point, God has given Pharaoh an option. He said, look, I want you to let my people go. He sends a plague because Pharaoh refuses, and yet Pharaoh will not repent. He will not let the nation go and depart. And so finally, in Exodus chapter 12, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, this month shall be your beginning of months. I'm going to restart your calendar right now. It shall be the first of the month until of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for the household. And so on the tenth day of this first month, they were to take a lamb into their house. And they were to keep the lamb there with them for four days. And this time period, their job was to inspect the lamb, to have an eye on uh, this lamb to make sure it was without spot and without blemish. And then on the evening of the fourth day, the 14th day of the month, uh, they were to sacrifice the lamb. They were to take the lamb's life. And as they sacrificed the lamb, they were told to take the blood of the lamb and to put it over the doorpost. And for all that had the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, they were going to be spared death. That death was coming to Egypt, that judgment was on its way, that Pharaoh had refused to repent, and as a result, uh, judgment was coming. And so only those who had been protected, covered by the blood of the Lamb, would death pass over their house. So we have the Feast of Passover here. And it's by the blood of the Lamb that the nation of Israel, not only did Pharaoh let them go, but all of Egypt, as they cried out that their firstborn had died that evening as they all cried out. They said, it's not just can you go, it's get out. Get out right now. They sent them with gold and animals and anything they wanted, and they literally were able to to pillage Egypt willingly. They just wanted Israel gone. And so the nation is able to be sent forth, not only from Egypt, but then through the Red Sea. You recall Moses parting the Red Sea and the nation walking through the water. And so, a nation is born by the blood of the Lamb and through the water, uh, birthing fluids. A nation is literally born right there. And they make their way into uh, the Sinai Desert. And as they arrive there at Mount Sinai, uh, Moses, he makes his way on up to the mountain. The fire, the cloud, it's all up there, the thunderings, and the people are like, look, we want nothing to do with going up there, Mo. Uh, Have at it. And so Moses makes his way on up the mountain, and God gives him the law. He gives them the law not to punish them, but to actually separate them, to sanctify them, to set them apart, to make them a special people, a holy people that all the nations around would look and go, why is your God so different than ours? 
and actually to this and want to know more about their God. It was to be inclusive, not exclusive. But what you know throughout history, if you read through your Bible, is that over and over and over again for the next 600 years, the nation would not obey. They wouldn't turn. They wouldn't listen to the commands of God. His promises broken time and time again. And really what's at the heart of the matter is they didn't believe. They doubted him. They doubted God. They didn't believe him at his word or take his promises to be exactly what he had said that he would do. And so if you read through your scripture, you'll find that in 722 B.C., uh, Israel, the northern ten tribes, were taken captive by Assyria. They were carted off. And you would have thought for the southern two tribes, for Judah and for Benjamin, this would have been enough of a warning for them to go, God's really serious. But as you continue through the text, what you find is they continue to not repent. They were prideful. They were a stubborn, stiff-necked people is what God said. Until finally, in 586 B.C., the nation of Judah, the same tribe that was given this awesome promise that the scepter is not going to depart, the Messiah is going to come from your line, these promises are going to take place all through you, they were taken away in 6 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian Empire. He came in and not only did he uh, take Judah captive and carry uh, her off, but he completely obliterated Jerusalem. The temple that Solomon built, not one stone was left upon another. It was utter destruction. The people were removed from the land because they would not obey. And so this is the spot we arrived then in Daniel chapter 9. Now Daniel was one of the first to be deported. There were actually three deportations by Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel was in the first group, him and uh, three of his buddies. You know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But to you Hebrew lovers, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, these guys were all taken away with uh, Daniel. And as they arrived there in Babylon, they're actually given spots of authority. God actually has favor upon them. But here's Daniel still thinking back to his childhood, probably taken away at 14 or 15, away from everything he knew and loved there in Jerusalem. All the promises in Scripture he was no doubt recalling. And here's what he says in verse 18 of Daniel chapter 9. He says, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our rights, but because of your great mercies. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake. My God, for your city and your people are called by your name. And so here's Daniel praying about the destruction of Jerusalem. He's thinking back to what's happened, and he cries out, Oh God, don't you remember? Remember the promises you gave. Remember all the good things that you were going to do for us. Oh Lord, don't forget. We have no righteousness, but you're righteous. You're good. You're true. And so he's, he's recalling, he's reminding God of his goodness. Now, as you think about that, that seems like a funny thing to do, right? Do we really need to read through Scripture and remind God that he's good? Hey, Lord, don't you remember you're good? And it's not like God's forgotten, right? He's not sitting in heaven going, you know what? I am good. I am merciful. I completely forgot until you mentioned it. No, we're encouraged to God's goodness and his righteousness 
Not because he forgot, but because we forget. We're the ones that need reminded. We're the ones that need to recall. And so we have an opportunity, as Daniel shows us here in verse 18 and 19, God, you're good. You're merciful. You're gracious. Remember, O oh Lord, how good you are. And so as Daniel is reminding goodness, what we see is God was good to send a messenger his way. He sends the angel Gabriel to give to Daniel a vision of what it's going to look like out into the future. This would be the same Gabriel that would bring a message of the Messiah to Mary. There's no coincidence there. So Gabriel shows up to actually give to Daniel a message concerning the promises of God, and in particular, the Messiah. He says then in verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgressions, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Referencing specifically the Messiah. And so as Daniel is recalling the goodness of God, he's reminding God of his promises. What are you going to do about it, Lord? God says, I'm going to show you what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you how I'm going to reconcile all this. I'm going to put an end to transgression, an end of sin. I'm going to reconcile iniquity once and for all. The, the most holy is going to be anointed. And he mentions at the very first 70 weeks. Now, a week is just merely a period of time. And so we typically think of a week of days being a seven. But in this spot, he is at a week of years. And so in the Bible, there are weeks mentioned, sometimes weeks that we think of, sometimes weeks of years, sometimes weeks of weeks. And so it's a period of sevens. So in this spot, the word is given to Gabriel to give to Daniel about a period of 70 weeks or 490 years are determined to settle things up for the nation of Israel and to anoint the Messiah. Now, verse 25 he says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Ju Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, and the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And so Daniel's prophecy has now been split into two sections. The first 69 weeks, the 7 plus the 62, and the final 7 weeks or 7 years. So this first 69-week uh, period is a period of 483 years, 69 times 7. I'm a math whiz. You guys are impressed so far. If you think about when Daniel receives this prophecy, he is living in Babylon. And they had the Babylonian 360-day calendar. So the exact time period for Messiah the Prince to show up is 173,880 uh, times 360. So the word has been given, but it's not given from the time of the prophecy. Notice with me, it says, from the order of the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome time. And so a marker is given of when the prophecy actually starts, when the time clock starts. It's from the order to build the walls of the city of Jerusalem. So for that, we're going to go back to Nehemiah chapter 2. <clears throat> now, as we go backwards to Nehemiah, some of you are like, I thought we were going from left to right. I like that. 
Well, what you know as you turn to Nehemiah chapter 2 is that our Old Testament is actually broken up into sections. The first five books are the Pentateuch. That's the books of Moses. The next section are the books of history. So you have the history of Israel and Judah. That's Joshua, Judges, Ruth, taking us through the Kings and Chronicles. And then we go to the books of poetry, which are Psalms and Proverbs and Job. And then finally, the books of the prophets, the major prophets beginning with Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and then the minor prophets starting off with Hosea. So all that to say, this book is not in chronological order. But what it is, is an order of topic. And so we go back, but we're actually going forward in time. So after the time of Daniel, we're now going forward in time. And where we are at now is the empire has been replaced. And the Medes and the Persians have come in and actually taken over from the Babylonians. And they've allowed Ezra, along with Zerubbabel, to go back and rebuild the temple. And so the temple has now been able to be rebuilt. It's not as awesome as Solomon's temple, but they did the best they could. And yet, as we arrive in Nehemiah chapter 2, what we find is Nehemiah has just gotten word that, yes, the temple has been rebuilt, but the walls of the city are still ruined. They're falling down. And so he's greatly distressed because the walls are their only way of protection. So just because they have the temple rebuilt doesn't mean it's protected. The enemy could come right in and knock the thing over again. So Nehemiah is terribly upset. And we read in chapter 2, verse 1, It came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. And so Nehemiah has a particular job inside the Medo-Persian Empire. He's what's known as a cupbearer. Now, a cupbearer doesn't mean that he's just the king's uh, drinking buddy. They just hang around and drink wine all day. But actually what it means is he's one of the top heads of the king. And this king is a guy named Artaxerxes Longamanus. And all that to say, he is the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, the most powerful human in the world at this particular time. He is dominating the known world as at this time it was known. And so uh, Artaxerxes sees Nehemiah coming in. He presents the wine, but he's, he looks downtrodden. His face is sad. And Nehemiah makes it clear, look, I've never been sad in his presence before. The reason for that is it was actually illegal to bum out the king. That if you uh, showed up in front of the king and you made him sad in any way, shape, or form, it would be off with your head. And so this is why Nehemiah says, I was dreadfully afraid because the king looked at me and said, hey, why are you bumming? That's the Brock Ashley version. But that's essentially what the king said. Why are you so bummed out? What's wrong? You, you obviously are sorry. You've got sorrow in your heart. And so Nehemiah in verse 3 says, may the king live forever. Why should my face be not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? And then the king said to me in verse 4, what do you request? And so I prayed to the God of heaven. I want to stop there and say that uh, I would have been tempted to just go on with my request when God presented that. I would have it right out there. But notice what Nehemiah does first. He prays. He just says, Lord, what would you have me do, right? He, he, he petitions God. He comes to him and says, is, is this the way you'd have me go or ask for 
the Lord to go before him. So I love this about Nehemiah as a leader. He prayed to the God of heaven, and then he proceeds to present his request, that he be allowed to go back to the city of Jerusalem and rebuild the walls of the city. And what you find in the next verses is that is, in fact, exactly what Artaxerxes allows him to do. The command was given, and in verse 8, the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Nehemiah had the hand of God upon him, and he was allowed, sent back, in fact, ordered to go and rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Now, all that to say that this started on the first day of the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes Longamanus, and what is the importance of that? Well, the date, if you go to our current Gregorian calendar that we all look at, is uh, March the 14th. 445 B.C. And if you add 173,880 days to that, accounting for leap years, where you will arrive is April the 6th, 32 A.D., what we know as Palm Sunday, the day to the exact day of Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, exactly as Daniel prophesied it 600 years before it happened. How awesome is our God? Right on time. Courtesy of Sir Robert Anderson, 1894, in his book, The Coming Prince. For any of you fact checkers out there that want to look that up, he did all the hard math. But I want to encourage you that Jesus arrived exactly the day God said that he would. And so all that and the longest introduction in the history of messages leads us to Luke chapter 19, where we will pick up in uh, verse 29. And it came to pass when he, Jesus, drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you will enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. Verse 32, So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. In verse 35, Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And so what we see is Jesus, for the first time in his ministry, as he enters Jerusalem, he is now entering as a king. He is making it very clear based upon all the prophetic fulfillment of what he's up to and the way that he was presented. He is coming in to the city as the king they had been waiting on. Now, for some of you, you may wonder, like, what kind of an entry for a king is this? What king would ride on a colt or on a donkey? Like, that, that doesn't seem like a very kingly entrance. For those of you that wonder, you can go with me to 1 Kings chapter 1. In this spot in 1 Kings Chapter 1, we see a king getting ready to pass off the scene, a guy that you might know named David. So David is getting ready uh, to go on to be with Jesus, and as he's getting ready, his oldest living son, a guy named Adonijah, decides he's going to take over the kingdom from dear old dad. He didn't bother to consult dad about this. He just decided that he's going to take over the family business. Now, dad had other plans given to him by the Lord that Solomon, his young 
son, only 15, was going to be the rightful heir to the throne. And so what David does in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 32, he says, Call to me Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came to the king, and the king also said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have my son ride in on my own mule and take him down to Gihon, and there let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel and blow the horn and say, Long live King Solomon. And so what this signified, going back to our story, was a transfer of power. What David did for Solomon, the son of David, is he transferred the power of the kingdom over to his son Solomon, but in a way of war, in a way of peace. His very name meant peace. But the idea of a transfer of power was very clear. Now, if you fast forward to our story and you see Jesus, son of David, riding into Jerusalem on a colt, and you see the very clear uh, connection God is trying to make, that the lion of the tribe of Judah, Shiloh, who has come, he is coming as a descendant of Judah. If you check Matthew 3 and Luke uh, or Matthew 1 and Luke 3. This is why God gives us genealogies. All this scripture is now coming to be fulfilled. And as Jesus enters into the city uh, in peace, he also fulfills uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. That's one of those minor prophets that are hard to find. Uh, Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king, he is just and having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so he is fulfilling now these Old Testament prophecies. But what he's also doing is something else. He is drawing out faith amongst his disciples. What I mean by that is if you check out our story, he tells the disciples, I want you to go into the next village and I want you to loose a colt. And if anybody asks you anything, uh, just tell them the Lord has need. Now, this would be like the Lord giving us a word to go uh, right up here to Pilsen Auto at the corner of Route 16 and 130. And instead of climbing in a colt, I want you to just go climb in a brand new ram. And if anybody comes out from the office, you just hold up the keys and say, the Lord has need. And tell me how well that goes for you. What you're probably going to find is uh, you're going to get a nice visit to the Coles County Jail. But here's the thing. Uh, when the Lord gives you the faith... The Lord makes a way, he will see that it actually takes place as he said. And so he always gives us the faith ahead of time to do the thing that he's calling us to then exercise the faith to do that. And so the story is crazy. I mean, these guys just take a, a brand new colt and go on their way because the Lord has need of it. He's drawing the faith out of these disciples. But what also the Lord is doing is he's communicating transfer of power. But notice with me, as Jesus gives them the word, he says, you'll find a colt on which no one has ever sat. Remember, David put Solomon on his own mule to show a transfer of power. But here's Jesus sitting on a mule on a colt that no one has ever sat before. Why? Because there has been no king before him. There will be no king after him. He is the king of kings the Lord of Lords, and he's making it very clear. The power is being transferred, but I am the first, the last, uh, forever. And so Jesus now riding triumphantly into the city, and they continue in verse 36. And he went, uh, and as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. 
Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he had for, that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if they, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And so as Jesus now comes into the city, riding in triumphantly, they lay down palm branches and they lay down their clothes on the road. Got a, a quote from Psalm 118, verse 24. They say, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. That's Hosanna. Save now, I pray. O Lord, O Lord, I pray. Send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And so fulfilling prophecies from the book of Psalms, Jesus riding triumphantly in, and as he rides in in peace, and we looked at him as a priest in the line of Melchizedek back in Hebrews, who was the king of righteousness, the king of Salem, and now we see the prince of peace, God of all creation, the Lord of righteousness, riding into the city as the king of Jerusalem, the king of peace. And so here's Jesus riding in, but as he rides into the city, what you find is not everybody was a big fan. That the Pharisees were crying out from the crowd to rebuke them proclaiming the name of Jesus. I bring all that up to say, um, as we proclaim the name of Jesus, there will be some who are offended. Not uh, maybe, not uh, probably, but absolutely it will happen. There will be those who will be offended as we proclaim his name. What Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, one, he says, Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you not at all, but rather division. This is Jesus saying this. And, and to us, it sounds, that even sounds offensive. But remember, as he is the word in the flesh, what Hebrews tells us about the word is that it will divide the spirit from the flesh. Division happens within us as the word is presented. And oftentimes it can come across as offensive and, and bothersome, but the reason is it offends my flesh. My flesh needs cut away and needs divided. I, I find that to be the case. And as we present the gospel, the good news to people around us, don't be surprised if they're offended. It's offensive to our flesh because it offends, directly assaults our own self-righteousness. Our own wanting to be the king of our uh, own village, right? We want to be on the throne in God's place. And what Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 33, is, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And so the rock of offense will often uh, be offensive to our own pride and our own self-righteousness. But what he is really offering is freedom. As Jesus is riding into town, what he is saying is, I mean, freedom from sin. A cutting away of what uh, wants to destroy you, your flesh that wants to literally take you down to the pits of hell. He's saying, I'm offering you freedom by his own blood. By his blood, his sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away 
the sin of the world, is coming to offer himself to be examined over these next four days, to be deemed perfect. This is why Pilate says, I find no fault in this man. He is showing that he is the Lamb of God from Exodus chapter 12, fulfilling all these things. Now, as we make our way down the home stretch, verse 41, as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So as Jesus rides into town triumphantly, he looks upon the city. He gives his own prophetic word. He says, if you would have just known, if you would have just realized and recognized what was actually happening, if you would have studied up on your own prophecies and known what this day was actually all about, and yet fulfilling the last piece of the Daniel prophecy there, and the last piece for today, in the Daniel prophecy, verse 26 after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end of it shall be with a flood till the end of war desolations are determined. You see, what the prophecy of Daniel also said is the Messiah is going to be cut off. That final week is still yet to come. He is cut off because the people did not recognize their visitation. They didn't realize that Jesus was there. They rejected him. And if you think about that, this is after literally thousands of years of waiting. All this time, all this anticipation, and then Messiah shows up, and they reject him. And as Jesus looks upon the city, he weeps. He responds differently uh, than I would for sure. If it after all this time, if I'm rejected even after just a few minutes, I don't know about you, but I'm like, burn, baby, burn. Let him have it, right? Not Jesus. He looks upon them and he cries because he sees what's getting ready to take place. And in 70 AD, exactly as Jesus said it was going to take place, all of Jerusalem is obliterated. Not one stone left upon another. Even to this day, you can go and see the burn marks on the walls of the city. It was complete and utter destruction that they could have avoided. And so all that to say, as we wrap up the message, which is entitled, In God's Timing, have you ever considered the perfect timing of God in your life? I did all that crazy math not to bore you, but to say his timing is always perfect. It really is. We cry out to him wanting things done in our timing, wanting things done our way, but his way is always so much better. He is always right on time. And as that reality sinks in, the question that needs to be asked is, what are you going to do when he visits? What does it look like on your day of visitation? When the Lord says, as 
He tells us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. So that's the question to be asked. What do you do when he stands at the door and knocks? When he's looking for entry. When he wants to dine with us. Because the reality of it is, for all those that reject him, it looks like complete and utter destruction. And it doesn't mean that he's happy about it. Ezekiel 33 says that I do not delight in the destruction of the wicked. God at no point in time is excited about pouring wrath out on humanity. But we demand it. We, we beg for it. And so as Jesus is saying, look, I stand at the door and knock. The question is, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to answer the door? Are you going to say, come on in? Are we going to accept him? Understanding and recognizing he doesn't need us to accept him because he needs approval from man. We need to accept him to avoid destruction. As he cries out for the city of Jerusalem, this wasn't just destruction for them, but also for their children and their children's children, their families were going to be torn apart. And this is what the Lord wants us to not have to endure. And so the question is, what is our nation? What, what day is it that he's going to actually come and visit? And I would tell you what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, is today. Today is the day of visitation. Today is the day of salvation, says the Lord. And if you wonder, when is a good day to accept him? When is a good day to invite him in? When is a good day to open the door and say, come on in, have your way with me, Lord? It's today. And, and what he is about to show us over this next week as we go through the Passion Week is he will endure every possible thing you can imagine. He will take on every stripe upon himself. He will endure all of our sin, all of our shame, if we'll just simply accept him. Now, finally, as we close, there are those of you, many of you in here, you've accepted him, but you began to run short on hope. You began to wonder, when is he going to show up? When is he going to deliver me? When is he going to arrive and finally get me to this next spot? I want to encourage you that he is never, ever late. That he is all about deliverance. But I also want to encourage you, and what is he trying to bring you through in this next season? As we get an opportunity and we get to truly remember what his blood being poured out, what his body being broken means, he is all about addressing us right now. He is all about seeing us delivered right now. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. Lord, I thank you for prophecies that we get the opportunity in these last days to see fulfilled. I thank you for the opportunity to journey through your word and see how amazing you are. That your word stands the test of time. That while we can't be trusted with much of anything, I, I, I give a promise and I can't even keep it till this afternoon. <laughs> you give a promise and it, it endures forever. And so Lord, I thank you and I praise you that your word stands the test of time. That prophecies from the time of Daniel we can see play out through history, even until today. 
Thank you, Lord, for what you're up to. Thank you for being willing to, for our benefit, for our behalf, lay your life down as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask Rob and Scott in passing out the communion elements. If you want to take that, we'll partake together as a family here in just a few minutes.